everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 282, Go Miles Go, recorded April 23rd, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only place on the internet where geeks rant. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the faithful element opiates who are poised once again for world domination. Hello. <laughs> That's all I got. I, I feel like I just talked to you some 23 hours ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say, it's Vuja Day all over again. <laughs> so we are recording this uh, episode um, in advance of a hiatus we're going to be taking this summer. And so we pre-recorded last night uh, on, on Saturday. This is our regular Sunday recording time, uh, so that's why I let you in on the inside joke there. Um, so if Seth and I uh, and Miles, if we all seem like we're a little tired of each other and we don't have anything to say, that's why. You know, we, we have built our entire relationship on speaking one or two hours a week, and when you go beyond that, it turns out we don't like each other that much. Um, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> I just don't say much, and it takes me a week to build up something to say and we drained that last night you know that you've you've all heard the studies that women speak x words a day and men speak x divided by a hundred words a day um I, I think in my household those numbers are reversed i'm the blabbermouth and my wife is very silent and quiet so apparently <laughs> i'm the woman and she's the man in that regard well i share that one yeah i'm in the same boat uh, but she's one of those that has this uh, very quiet, unassuming nature. She's, she's just cute little Barbie sits in the corner and, and smiles and looks pretty. And then lays, uh, lays out this acid-dipped poison dart of a, of a, a smart-ass remark. And everybody is like, whoa, where, where did that come from? That's, that's her. She's always thinking that. She just doesn't say it. <laughs> she that shall be obeyed. <laughs> yes. Um. Anyway, that might be the first time you've come that close to profanity on this show, Mark. You really do a much better job. I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to let you down. Um, that is, you know, I, I guess that is that's on the list of bubble words, you know, that some people consider uh, a negative and others don't. Right. And you do such a good job of staying far to one side that when you use it, it's not a bubble word. Yeah, that's a good point. So I uh, saw this interview we're going way off script here people with leonard nimoy and he was talking about how he played spock and it was when you play no emotion any emotion is a big deal and so when uh that that scene where uh he thought he killed kirk i can't remember the the episode but at the end of it kirk walks in he says jam and he and he, he hugs him and and then he covers it that was the super impactful moment because we had two years invested of spock not showing any emotion. So yeah, right. it's the same thing. If you you reserve those power moments, they become more powerful. Uh, that's my um, thinking on swearing in general. Every society has set aside a group of words that are power words. These words mean things, and when you overuse them, they lose their power, and so they're pointless. And you know that's why uh, anybody who does a tour in the military comes out with a potty mouth and doesn't even realize it. Those words have just lost all meaning in that context. So I like to use my power words when they're powerful. All righty then. Yeah. Okay. Um, that that was all about that. So uh, maybe sometimes a, a second look at something can, can can restore some power to a piece of you know, weak transition. I'm sorry, Seth. You watch Resurgence Day, Independence Day Resurgence again. 
Yes, because, you know, we're having, uh, I guess Dish is getting hard up for cash, so they give you that free preview weekend of all the premium channels. And I was scrolling through, and it was on there, I thought, and I had a chain, I had a chain of thoughts, like, I was so disappointed by this movie, and it's been a while, let me watch it again. So I had missed maybe the first minute, I was very early into it, and I have got to say, on watching this movie a second time, it was maybe 40 times worse than the first time I saw it. The goodwill that the first movie had built up was expired from the first time of watching it. On the second time through, the plot holes are glaring. The inconsistencies are you literally... I mean, I'm laying in bed, and the next thing I know, I tripped and fell on the floor. They were so bad. There was absolutely... No redeeming quality. Visually, special effects were good, but his awful movie, The Asylum, should have done the official sequel. It would have been much, much better um, than that. So, yes, it is still a bad movie. I don't think it will get any better over time. See, I didn't have quite the strong reaction that you did. I felt that it was a a uh, moderately bad movie. On a scale of 10, it's a 6. Um, but And it'll... It'll half that the second time you watch it. Possibly. Um, but the uh, the first one was a 9.5. And so when you expect a follow-up to a 9.5, you're expecting at least a 9. Because uh, we all know sequels are never as good as the original. But right. you know this one, it was the letdown factor that made it even worse. Yes, there was a, uh, uh, a definite, this is not a great movie factor, but the the letdown of your expectations i felt i felt that it was just a a, a moderately bad movie not a sharknado bad movie what do we have about 20 years between no yeah 25 yeah, was it 20 25 years between them yeah you think they'd have they'd get it right but <laughs> that's the thing they had all this time and they just <laughs> yeah. didn't yeah yeah i was like you know had that movie come out a couple of years later maybe it, i wouldn't have thought it as bad but it was just, it, you know, and like when I was watching, I was like, okay, there's Vivica Fox. She has absolutely no reason to be in this movie. You know, that would have, I just like, and you know, um, Jeff Goldblum's dad, he shouldn't have been in the movie. It's just like, and the guy who was a quote unquote hero of the first war, he didn't do anything but stand in a bunker all day. They shouldn't have shown him either. It was all of this stuff. If they, if they just would have gotten rid of so many nods to the past and tried to, uh, you know, do the thing from, uh, the day after tomorrow, it, it could have been less crappy. But instead, they they went for full blown craptastic and they knocked it out of the park. I really think the moment Will Smith refused to come back, they should have abandoned the concept of a sequel and made it a second movie in the same universe. Uh, because th- that they lost their star power for sure. Hey, props to Will Smith. He saw something coming, didn't he? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, now uh, I recently watched most of. I couldn't. I couldn't make it through all. And I I like a bad movie. Um, for you know very different reasons, but I I watched uh, Jupiter Ascending, or at least most of Jupiter Ascending, um, and it was on Sci-Fi, uh, and it came on at like nine o'clock, and it's a very long movie. And at about eleven o'clock, when they were going into the third time, where she said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do this stupid thing because um, I'm a person who does stupid things, and it seems like the right thing to do." I was like, "I'm done with this. This is now Act Three or Four of essentially repeating Act One. I'm done." Um, it was a really remarkably bad movie, but the visuals were so amazing. Um, and, and it illustrates to me um, how 
important, for example, um, Bruce Willis was to The Fourth Element. Because in a lot of ways, they're similar movies. Stunning visuals, uh, bizarre um, uh, uh, pictures of the future, alternate realities, that sort of thing. But there was no star. There was nobody to anchor it. There was nobody winking and nodding to the camera the whole time saying, yeah, I can't believe this is happening either. Um, and you need that. And I don't know if it was the character or the actor, or probably it was the, the combination of the two. Um, you needed that, and it just didn't have it. It had a couple of mediocre actors who happened to be very beautiful. Um and it was just so bad, I couldn't finish it. Yeah, now, I agree. Not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I enjoyed the movie. So, I it appealed to me. But again, while I was watching it, I was going, not a great movie. I see why nobody watched this, but... It's my, it's right up my alley. And so, you know, I have an alley. You have like this uh, cul-de-sac with overhanging <laughs> trees and Bentleys parked along. And I have like dumpsters and uh, faded infrastructure. But yeah, so, you know, to each their own. But like I say, even while I was watching it, yeah, I can see why this movie flopped. Yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't have even remembered I watched it until you mentioned it. And then I thought, oh, yeah, I did watch that. Huh. That was meh. Right. So, oh, well. Yeah. And, and if it hadn't been late at night, um, you know, if it was a Saturday afternoon fodder, I probably would have continued to watch it. But just in the context, it wasn't worth the the uh, spending the capital of attention on it. It just wasn't. The visuals weren't enough at that point. I mean, uh, let's be honest. Uh, the, the lead actors themselves are enough eye candy to get the average man and woman to sit down for two and a half hours. Um but and then you throw in the just stunning visual effects, absolutely stunning visual effects. Um, that is enough for most people. But at that point, I was tired. It was the end of the day, and I just couldn't believe that we were going down this rabbit hole one more time. So mm. I, I'll probably try it again some other time on a Saturday afternoon when I'm, you know, doing something else and it's on in the background. Right. All right. Uh, just a word. Uh, if you haven't uh, noticed uh, the the website, elementop.com, as well as all my other websites, uh, well, oh, I still haven't gotten one of them back, uh, are back up and running. Um, still looking for a host that doesn't randomly, for no reason, decide to break all my websites. Uh, but the site's back up and Host Monster still sucks. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> uh, and Miles, you, uh, you wanted to complain about uh, Unity? Well, I'm not sure if it's a complaint. It's more of an observation. I, I'm running, um, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of old Linux people still listen to us, right? So, uh, I'm one of the uh, Linux guy. I run Linux on my desktop, and I run uh, Ubuntu 16.04 Mate edition, uh, only because I like, you know, the old GNOME menus, and I'm, I couldn't handle Unity, and it, and it just, you know, but it works, and it's an LTS, so it's fine for me. Um, so, you know, I don't really seem to need to upgrade this thing for a couple of years. Anyway, I'm just listening to podcasts, and as I hear, they brought out Ubuntu 17.04, and they dropped Unity, and they brought back GNOME. And I'm thinking, if you remember, you remember the time, if, all these Linux guys probably yeah. do, when they went from GNOME to Unity, and there was this like, crazy backlash and rebellion in the community and everyone thought Ubuntu were nuts and and it seemed like one in ten people liked Unity and everyone else wanted to stay with GNOME and you had all this splitting and everything. Um, yeah, well, apparently Ubuntu said, yeah, you're right. We'll go back to that then. Yeah, they burned so a lot of capital 
to go down a, str- a road that they chose to to not continue down. That's uh, that shows poor leadership at the very at the very least. Yeah, I just what surprised me the most though was how little attention this news got. I thought this would be earth shattering, you know, the return of Ubuntu kind of news, but everyone heard it and went, yeah, mm, okay, and that was it. I guess we're all using Mint or something right. like that just to avoid it. Yeah, so that's the thing. They nobody was nobody's going to miss Unity because nobody was using Unity, um, right? You know, as a percentage of of the the audience. I mean, the people who take the default and run with it uh, aren't going to care either way. But the people who take the default and run with it, and the people who take the effort to install uh, Ubuntu, there's a very small cross section there. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was it. It was just an observation. I just yeah. thought. Wow, I'm surprised this didn't get major press, but anyway. So it's a thing. Yeah, I remember seeing it, and had we been still the EDL podcast, we would have given it much. But since I was like, (laughs) eh, you know. Yeah, really. Rick in the (laughs) chat room says they finally realized they weren't going to own the desktop and the phone and the tablet. Well, the fact is they're not going to own any of them. Um, (laughs) And I think that's what it was. They just said, well, let's serve our core clients uh, because we can at least make some gray beards happy. Yeah. Uh, and, and just a, a quick, um, you know, personal uh, experience thing. Uh, I've had uh, twice recently uh, in the very, uh, 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 in the recent past experiences of you never know what you want until you have it kind of thing. You know, Steve, Steve Jobs used to tell people uh, that my, my customers don't know what they want until I tell them what they want. Um, just recently after, uh, like when, when we got married, my wife and I 23 years ago, bought a cheap little uh black and decker two toast toast two slice toaster oven and we lived with that until literally we we burned the elements out of it and then for like the last eight years we haven't had a toaster oven at all and just recently for for my birthday i decided i'm gonna buy a high quality toaster oven. i'm gonna spend more than 18 dollars on a toaster oven and i went out and bought a really nice high quality uh eight slice uh uh um convection oven essentially that's it's a countertop convection oven not just a toaster oven and i never realized how much how much it would change my life it seems like such a simple thing it is a simple thing but it's amazing how much it changed my life to have a second smaller oven so that when the kids want to heat up some you know frozen chicken strips we don't have to to heat the whole house up because we're cranking up a big oven um you know i I did six slices of cinnamon toast the other day just because i could uh little things like that and then it also reminded me of of when we again when we got married all those years ago we got a just just a cheap walmart hamilton beach uh food processor and we burned out the of uh the engine on it the motor on it and got another cheap one you know i I think i'd never paid more than twenty dollars for one in my life. And then a couple of years ago, I decided for my wife's birthday, she's a, you know, she's a, a cook, she's a caterer. She, she needs uh, high quality equipment. So I bought her like an actual Cuisinart, uh, spent a whole lot of money on a Cuisinart food processor. And it was another one of those things that you never know how much you need that, a good one until you have a good one. And you might think you have a good one, but until you have a good one, you don't know that you didn't have a good one. So sometimes you really do get what you pay for. Um, and that's, that's all that was. Cause I, I tend to make all decisions based on cost first. You know, I sort by price lowest to highest and then, you right. know, uh, arbitrarily pick something in the lower quarter of that and then start comparing features within the lowest quarter of all things. And most of the time that works out pretty well for me. Uh, or I think it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe if I actually went and spent the money on a Mac 
I would, I would change my life because I've actually had high quality hardware. I don't know. But, uh, anyway, uh, it, it was just one of the, I, I'm, I'm looking at buying some things like some outdoor furniture, some stuff like that for the house. And, and I found myself reverting to that sort price by price, low to high and start at the bottom and, and, and go up. And, and I, then I was reminded of these two experiences where I spent money for premium and it was really worth it. So just for what it's worth. You, you, you know, I think there was a time in the past where you could buy inexpensive and it was a good decision. And then all of a sudden there was, I don't know what it, what happened with it, it was uh, robotic manufacturer, Chinese manufacturer. I don't know what did it, but we, we had the same experience with vacuum cleaners. You know, I'd buy vacuum cleaners from Sears or, or Walmart or somewhere like that, and they'd last six months and die. And it's not like we have shag carpet or anything. I'm, you know, my house is mainly like tile and wood floor. It doesn't need much in the way of vacuum cleaners. But these things, they have a shelf life, and I guess it's by design. And after you spend three times, I don't know, $75, $100 or something for a vacuum cleaner, you start realizing it would have been better to spend 250 and get, you know, a high-end one. So we went and bought a Melee vacuum cleaner, I think. I think that's what it was. And I've had it for years, and it's never broken, and it's never gone down, and it works great, and it's not noisy. And I, I think I must have saved 50% on all the other vacuum cleaners that just died natural death. So there's a lot of sense to what you're saying. Seth, before you speak, I know what you're going to say. I can see it in your eyes, and I'm going to say it for you. Mark, you have abandoned your tightwad tech principles. You've got an uppity, you've got a little money, and I know I don't even know who you are anymore. Okay, I was going to say that that is true <laughs> until I wasn't going to say quite like that. I was going to say you owe an apology to everyone who ever listened to the tightwad tech because you are clearly no longer a tightwad and previous shows have proved you're no longer the tech. So now you're the the person formerly known has the tightwad tech. But and then Miles started talking and then what I'm going to say is Miles, here is your chance to convince me to take off my tinfoil hat because this one's not a visor this is a full-blown hat almost body wrap (laughs) that the ceos in non-electronic communication because they didn't want to trace back to them told people make that crap crappy quality so people will have to buy more that the reason the the quality went down is because they realized nobody's buying our stuff let's make it Let's make it cheaper so it wears out faster and people have to purchase more, thus giving us more money. So go convince me that it is not a conspiracy of the oligarchies or however you say that <laughs> Oligarchy. word. Oligarchy. Oligarchies that control the various manufacturing uh, cartels. You've got me, dude. I'm, I've, I stand in defeat because I agree 100% with everything you just said. So I share that tinfoil with you. No, it is. It's by design. Tinfoil. Seriously, it's by design. These guys are out there trying to make crappy products. So we have to buy four of them. And that increases their bottom line and increases their sales volume. Yeah. Yep, I've said it. That's what it is. I, I reached out to, oh, I used a corporate term there. Reached out. To, <laughs> oh, oh, my, I we just love died you, a little inside. Um, <laughs> I sent an email to uh, a listener to this show and and uh, uh, somebody who I consider a friend who is in the business of selling premium outdoor furniture. 
because we're looking at uh, outfitting our decks. We have two beautiful decks on our home that have no furniture on them. So we can either sit Indian style uh, or we can populate them in some way. And I know from past experience that if you go to Home Depot and spend $300 on a uh, a little uh, love seat table combination, you're going to re- be replacing that every two to three years. They're just going to rust out. It's just the way it is. So I thought, you know, let, let, let me think here. If I'm going to spend um, $300 every three years, in 10 years, I will have spent $1,000. So what can I get for, you know, $1,000? And let's see what happens there. So I, I, I contacted this guy and he sent me some uh, recommendations. Um, and it turns out that thousand dollars was, was for one half of one chair. Um, so, uh, now what, what I was considering my entire budget won't even purchase a single chair. Um, now I get that it's probably the last outdoor piece of furniture I'm ever going to purchase. It is that high quality, but I'm still a tightwad in that regard that I just can't pull the trigger on that. I mean, literally I can't, I don't have that kind of money, uh, to do that. But even if I did, I just can't make myself spend uh, $26,000 on 10 pieces of outdoor furniture. Um, end of sentence. I mean, I don't know why I felt the need to continue that sentence. I can't make myself spend $26,000 on 10 pieces of outdoor furniture. Um, but I understand that it may be, it may be one of those cases that if I did it, I would have that same experience of like, Oh, it was so worth it. I should have done it. No, no, no. Craigslist is your friend. Right. There's some there's some idiot out there who did spend twenty six thousand dollars on it, got it, and then sold their house. And they want to get rid of that stuff. They can't afford to transport it to New York or wherever they're moving. They San Francisco, they've got a condo, they can't put it anywhere. So they just want out of it. They want rid of it. And they'll take a thousand dollars for the whole thing. You'd be taking a problem off their hands. Yeah, and I've been I've been looking for that sort of stuff, uh, but uh, I haven't found anything just yet. But for example, I do need a new grill. Uh, the 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 house came with a grill, and I wondered why the the owner was so quick to say, "Sure, we'll throw that in." Then I took the cover off of it, and I realized it is the original grill to this twenty year old house. It's been out in the rain for twenty years. It's showing its life. It's a Weber. It, I'm still using it. It's it has held up that long, uh, but literally the handle comes off every time I open it. Uh, it's, it's just falling apart. So I want another piece of equipment that's going to last another 20 years. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, East Texas white trash. We used to go to Walmart and spend $99 on a propane tank, uh, propane grill grill that didn't come with a tank. Um, and then, you know, replace it every two to three years. Uh, and I'm looking for, you know, decent quality stuff. I'm looking at spending $26, $2,700 or even $5,000, uh, for the, the high end stuff. And that's not even, you know, like a built in, that's just a standalone four burner grill that's of, of decent quality. Um, and I just, I'm still not, I'm not at that point, Seth, yet. I'm not quite a sellout enough that I'm willing to just pay any price for quality, but I am beginning as I get older to understand that the value of, of my time and hassle has some value to it and that it is worthwhile to, to spend a little money, more money up front rather than, than the maintenance. You know, and here's the sad part. The stuff that they want to charge you multi-thousand dollars for is probably only two or three times better. The reason they jack that volume up so high is so you then come down and buy the cheap stuff and think, I can just throw this away every couple of years and come out ahead in 20 years still. But they're laughing all the way at the bank because, you know, it might even be the same chair for all you know. It's just you think that $4,000 chair, you're going to treat it nice, whereas the cheap one, you're just going to throw it away. Yeah. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. Tell convince me. No, I'm I, open. You're right. It is it is a it is a cycle that we've put ourselves into. The American race to the bottom has created an industry 
that is completely bifurcated. There's the high end uh, product that you pay a high end price for, and the low end product that is you know uh, so inexpensive that to uh, that that people have to sell them in the millions to make any profit. And the only way you can sell billions is to resell to the same customers for the rest of their life. And it's that that never ending cycle of buy cheap goods from China, keep it for a while, throw it away, uh, fill up, fill out the landfill some more, buy more cheap crap from China. Um, and I, at some point, I want to get off of that that uh, uh, hamster wheel, but I'm just I, I don't know how to do it. Um, do you really? I mean, do I really want to invest the time and energy to save up twenty five hundred dollars and buy a chair for the back deck, and then another X amount of months or years later buy another twenty five hundred dollar chair for the deck? Maybe I do. I just I haven't decided yet. Well, it's not going to stay new very long. Exactly. The second you get it home, it's used. So buy it used to begin right. with. Save the money and and cash out. Yeah, I'm a big fan of of used stuff. I really am. Uh, it keeps it out of the landfill too. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I'll, I will address this uh, since you brought it up. Uh, he says, by the way, Mark, the uh, podcast episodes are uh, in disorder on the podcast player. Yes. So when I had to restore from backup because my uh, uh, host service, host monster, uh, sucks so bad, everything now has the same date on it. So most RSS feeds sort by date, but when everything has the same date on it, what are you going to do? Um, now it's sorting probably by alphabetical order or maybe not even that. I don't know. I did uh, write a script with some help uh, from some people over on the IRC channel bash. Yes, there's a bash IRC channel. Thank you guys. Uh, that went through and um, I always name my files based on date anyway. Uh, because of the the publishing script that I use looks and matches up today's date and takes anything with today's date and publishes it so I can put it up there weeks or months in advance. And so I did do a touch on all of those files and put them um, in the right date order. But your podcast player probably hasn't updated the RSS feed yet. So, and it could be cached. Could be that even if you went right now and hit the refresh button, the caches on the internet are still holding out and you won't see it yet. So there you go. Ah, technology. <laughs> yeah, and uh, all right. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna end that. That was a, a wider ranging discussion than I'd planned, and that's what I love about meeting with you guys every week. I can plan A, B, and C, and we end up doing Q, Y, and L, and uh, you know, and and it's just the way it is. Uh, and now our one little bit of listener uh, response this week, Mike uh, offers his favorite podcast. He says, hey, Mike, the butcher turned IT from Tennessee. Been listening since everyday Linux days and still listening. These are my podcasts I listen to and are, and are in no particular order. Skeptoid. Someone mentioned this on a previous podcast, an, an excerpt from their Skype. A critical analysis of pop phenomena as, as an award-winning weekly science podcast since 2006. Uh Soft Rep Radio. This is a show that discusses news topics from a special operations viewpoint. The hosts are all former or current military, typically SEALs, Rangers, Recon, or PJs. Nice. They have both liberal and conservative viewpoints, and they try to give news and let you draw your own conclusions. Uh, third, the Outlandish Podcast. It started out as a World of Warcraft podcast, but has drifted into a general gaming podcast from cards, Steambox, Xbox, PlayStation, etc. The three hosts around... Uh, are in their mid-30s and have been friends since middle school. It's generally a lot of language, so I would rate this one R to R+. Um, 
the soft rep radio, he says PG-13 to R. Uh, number four, Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. It's a podcast that chronicles the exploits of Jason Muse and Kevin Smith in their day-to-day lives. The Jay and Silent Bob names are from characters they played in the Kevin Smith movie Clerks. This podcast also serves as a sort of narcotics anonymous meeting for Jason Muse, who is recovering uh, a recovering heroin user. It's a lot, and I mean a lot of language and a wide range of topics discussed here. Since most of these are recorded in clubs or cons, the audio quality can be very sketchy. If you like Kevin Smith movies, you would probably like this podcast. I would rate this one R to NC-17. Number five, Android App Addicts, a show dedicated to finding uh, the freshest apps on your Android devices. I always get at least one app I want to try out. I give this one a G to PG rating. And number six, Geek Rant, Geek Rant no explanation needed there. And he says, hope this list gets some new podcasts to listen to for someone. So, awesome. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I just added SoftRamp. I'm going to try the first one on the list and the most recent one to see if I like it. And there's only like 25. So, if I like it, I will listen to those in order because I got my uh, list of unread epi- or unlistened to episodes down to under 650. So, I am looking to throw some more in there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. And well, so... Oh, go ahead, Seth. No, I was going to say, you know, one of them was the um, the How Stuff Works. You know, those are just little two or three minute things, and right. I just blow through a couple of those a day. And so, you know, it's why not go back and listen to all, because those aren't really timely. They're just, anyway, I'm weird. I don't have a social life. You know, leave me alone and let me listen to my podcast. <laughs> uh, no judgment here, my friend. Um, so this started out this this podcast um the reason it's called go miles go started with an email from miles saying hey we should talk about this and then another email here's more information on this and then two other emails here's some more information on this and then 16 pages of documentation from the urantia book uh saying here's some more information about this um urantia book no just me okay um and uh so we just decided we were gonna turn miles loose on the whole um uh h1b visas uh thing that's going on now and and one of the reasons that i think this is fascinating uh and miles and i talked about this uh, very briefly in, a, in, a, in exchange in, in an email is he said that uh, you might think he would have a different view since he's an immigrant to the country and what i want to point out here is that miles is an immigrant and this entire discussion is about visitors it's a very different thing immigrants go through the time and effort to make a new place their home visitors mine a new place for resources and leave now with that preface go miles yeah that was very well put very well put okay well this week was a very interesting news week and i thought this was a salient topic because it came up on my news feed on two or three occasions um and i'm gonna go forward and say i'm not a big donald trump fan uh, that's probably an understatement. However, for once, I actually think he might have gotten something right. Um, this week, he was on the news, I believe, at, at a toolmaker uh, somewhere in Ohio. Or, no, it wasn't. It was Wisconsin, I think, somewhere up there anyway. Um, who And he unveiled uh, an executive order that he signed, which, you know, that probably doesn't have a great deal of weight, but at least what it's doing is instructing all the other departments to go forth with a an edict to change the way that immigration works in regards to temporary work visas. Now, this is a very U.S. 
thing. So for people who are not in the United States and listening to the podcast, I'll just explain it very briefly. Uh, the United States has certain programs which are often shared with other countries in which they issue out every year uh, a fixed number of temporary work visas. And the idea is to bring in qualified uh, talent into the country that we don't already have. The, the entire um, premise of everything is to make sure that we don't displace U.S. workers. We are supplementing the resources of U.S. companies to do their job, produce their products, whatever, with workers they don't currently have access to. Um, every year in the United States, they issue 85,000 visas. That number's varied a lot under the Clinton uh, regime. It went up as high as 200,000. But right now, and it's been down in the 85,000 range for quite some time, and uh, it usually goes within a week. Um, it used to be they issued them on the 1st of October every year. Now they're doing it, I believe, on the 1st of April. And typically they're all gone by the 7th of April for the entire year. And the problem with it is that um, they're all going to the same place for the same reason. And Trump has realized this, or somebody has realized this, this has been a noticeable thing going through Congress for many years, but nothing was ever done about it. And this week they started to do something about it. So here's the, here's the situation. I, I bring this out because this is geek rant. A lot of geeks listen to this and a lot of geeks work in the IT industry. And it doesn't matter whether you're a programmer or a software developer, whether you're a network engineer, whether you're a product manager or you're in support or you're a DBA or whatever you do in IT, um, this probably has affected you or will affect you at some point in your working life. Whether you are displaced because, you know, the company decided to downsize on labor or you got replaced with a temporary worker or a robot or something like that, this is going to be a very touchy subject because uh, what's happening is we issued 85,000 visas on April the 1st and 69, let, let's call it 70% of all of those visas went to one country, India. But they didn't just go to one country. They went to, in effect, about five large corporations who effectively lobbied to get massive quantities of these visas as soon as they were issued so that they could then employ people underneath their umbrella and bring them into the United States. And they come in under a program called an H-1B. And what an H-1B is... Uh, is a program that you can get, I think initially it's a three-year work uh, permit, and then it can be extended for an additional three years, so has a maximum length of six years. Uh, you come in, you're allowed to work, you're allowed to bring your family in. I am not sure whether they're allowed to work, but you are certainly allowed to bring in your, uh, your family. Effectively, you move to the United States, and you begin working under this company who is your sponsor. And you're not allowed to change employment. If you do that, you invalidate your visa and you've got to go home. Um, they set certain standards to try to make sure that who they're bringing in does not displace U.S. workers. 
But, but here's where the problem is. The, these big corporations have really smart legal departments and they're really good at, at sort of hacking the system, at finding the, the weaknesses in law and, and, you know, going after the, the sweet spots that they can get. And what they say is, you know, you've got to pay these employees a reasonable wage based on U.S. salaries. But what a reasonable wage is uh, – it varies because if you work in one state or, you know, they typically pay more. It might be, say, you're in California, cost of living is very high, uh, wages are much higher uh, than, than, let's say, Arkansas, for example. I'm not signaling anyone out, but it's just different cost of living. But the visas do not take into consideration a great deal of variance in that. And what's happening is that they're bringing in workers at half of the salary rate that the local U.S. worker would be getting uh, under this visa program and consequently displacing the local workers. Now, what you'll probably find when you look at this is that um, there's a lot of people who have different sides of the opinion on whether this is a good, bad, or indifferent thing. And it's very, very easy to spin this in such a way where it sounds like it's almost a refugee program and it's one of those heartfelt you know, extend the olive branch and bring in great talent from another country into your uh, country and boost out your resources so you can make better products and so on. But here's the, the problem. If you're a U.S. worker, particularly a younger U.S. worker, in order for you to get a job, and I'm not going to single out a company, but, but I'll use a, a couple of examples. Let's say, let's say Google. Um, if you want to work at Google – you're going to have to have at least a four-year college degree. And because most of these visas are issued into the IT working space, so we're talking probably a four-year like a computer science degree. Well, I did a little study, and what I found was that in order for you to get that, on average, the average cost for a U.S. person to get a four-year computer science bachelor's degree averages out at about $120,000 for that cost. The exact same uh, degree, if obtained in India, as a resident of India using the Indian, uh, I guess the equivalency of a public school system, is $200 for four years. So immediately the US worker is already covered in debt when they enter the workforce and require a wage at a certain level, not to mention the cost of living in terms of real estate and their family and their and everything else. Um, they can't compete with these H-1B visas. And the funny thing is that the way the loopholes work under this program, uh, a worker in the Silicon Valley can be brought in for as low as $60,000 a year as a salary as an H-1B uh, visa holder. 60000 doesn't get you to square one in the Silicon Valley. The average price of a home over there is like $1.5 million. There's no way you can survive on that. So, therefore, the, the US worker is going to need $150K to be able to do it and is saddled with student loan debt to come in and get the same job that the H-1B visa guy is going to going to come in at for half the price. Who do you think they're going to give that job to? Let me stop you right there, Miles, because I, I, I think there's a fallacy in your argument. And, and All I right. want- Let's pick it apart because I'm, I'm really open to yeah. – Changing my mind on this, and, and if you if you uh, so defend you defend yourself, sir. Um, okay, you said that you cannot live on sixty thousand dollars in Silicon Valley um, as a salary. 
But everybody yes. who gets an H-1B visa is doing just that. Right. So to say you can't do it is, is specious. You can. You can't do it and live the American lifestyle. Correct. But, okay, Mark, those people who are coming over don't have the debt that we have to pay, so they aren't saddled with debt. And plus, there's all kinds of exemptions to go along with that where they aren't paying all of the social services because California would love to be a um, sanctuary state. If you're not a full-blown citizen, basically, it's our job to support you. And another thing, you know, I mean, one, yeah. Where I live, sixty thousand dollars, you can live. You can live a middle class life. But yeah, in California, family. it's not going to happen. Everything is more expensive there. Gas is more expensive. Having a place to stay is more expensive. And then once they come in, they're locked at that job. So even an American can go there, get a year or two of experience, and say, "I want more money." No, fine, I'll go somewhere else. But they can't. I want more money. Get out of here. We'll bring in the guy who was a year behind you. So. They don't have the bargaining power. The companies do. So, I mean, there is some truth to your argument, but it on the balance, it's uh, much closer to the to Miles' side than yours. I, I think the other part of this, too, is that um, I'm not in any way saying that the people who come in under an H-1B visa are doing wrong. They're not. Their situation is that they they did the right thing. They they went and they got their degree in their country and they went looking for work and there isn't any and so they came here. And I don't blame them for that. I mean, that's they've got a family to support. They've got to do what they got to do. I get that, and they and that's fine. What I don't, what I have a big problem with are the companies that are taking advantage of our system and using them as an alternative for local U.S. labor to be, uh, to be hired. Um, it's, it's also interesting to note that in the same day that Trump issued this executive order to, to basically gut the H-1B visa program and change it dramatically, um, the Australian government dropped the exact same visa they had. They call it a 457 visa, and it's issued in exactly the same way to the same tech, uh, same sectors it's a four-year working visa program they basically just said no drop it we're getting rid of it we're not renewing the ones that are out there we're going to come up with something so much better and fairer for local workers it was it, it was almost the identical thing on the identical day i mean coincidence i don't know then i do a little more reading i find out new zealand did the same thing then I find out the UK uh, two years ago dropped their student visa program because it was being abused. And it's just, we, I don't want, this isn't so much about national protectionism, but what is really hard to stomach is that we have some enormously great talent in the United States and they deserve the right to go to college and come out and get a job. They're being saddled with a lot of debt on the hope and expectation the jobs are going to be there. And if we don't do something to stop this, this blatant exploitation of a system based on the holes in the, in the laws, there won't be anything for them to come out to. And, and that's really the premise of my whole point of discussion here is to say, is, what are we doing? Is this wrong to be protectionist under these circumstances? I mean, I totally agree with you, Miles. We covered 
it might have been last year. Um, I don't. I think it might have still been the EDL days, where this company in somewhere up in New England was basically outsourcing their in-house support by bringing in the people under the H-1B visa program to displace the ones, the American jobs that were there. And, you know, and they found a loophole to actually displace American workers. And one of the ways they tried to cover it up was by getting the people let go to sign an NDA, um, whereas if they broke it, they wouldn't receive their, um, the package you get when you're laid off. So, um, severance, severance. Yeah. So they were, and that's how they tried to cover it up. But some people were like, I'm going to talk anyway. And I don't remember when we covered it, it hadn't been, um, you know, I mean, there was really nothing they could do, but one that some local Congressman was holding hearings, uh, for all the good that does. But, um, you know, so I don't know what became of that, but it is a problem. And the, so, the problems that you've laid yeah. out are systemic in nature. Um, the there are large systems at play here. You both mentioned uh, the the tax burden as well as the the debt burden that the average American um, gets themselves into. I I started to say uh, that is required of the average American, but I, I don't think so. there are ways you can do it. But it's just really really hard. Uh, and then there's also the systemic uh, problem uh, in India in that they don't have the ability to support these people in their own country. Um, so you're dealing with two national systems um, that are both broken. You know, Americans are outsourcing the labor. India is outsourcing the the salary. They can't pay these people. Um, so they're taking, uh, you know, the, the Amer- they're outsourcing their, their payroll, essentially, to say that Americans are paying for it. And I would wager that... Um, I don't know for sure, but I would wager that the companies that are doing these uh, these visas, uh, you know, the the individual employees not seeing that sixty thousand, they're they're seeing you know forty thousand of it, and the and the company's taking twenty thousand, and these are these are people who have taken advantage of a of a largely flawed global system. I don't know that there is any silver bullet to it, but Miles, be constructive for a minute. Put put on your wizard hat. You're now king of the world. How would you fix it? Well, I, I, it's to me the the obvious and low hanging fruit answer on this is that the very companies that are benefiting from the cheaper labour should not be paying. I mean, look, when uh, somebody comes in from uh, Tatar or Infosys or any of these big corporations that bring them in, and they're being paid sixty thousand, Infosys isn't charging sixty thousand to Google; they're charging ninety thousand to Google, and they're skimming off uh, a. a amount for themselves i mean that's the nature i mean i hate to use the term but they're being pimps they're basically going in there and they're upcharging the labor and because ninety thousand is less than the 150 that google would have to pay a local worker they're still coming out looking like they're cheaper and so they're making you know you put ten thousand workers in and you're making thirty thousand dollars a piece that's big money but how is that different miles than the american concept of the it consultant I, I I could go tomorrow and get a job at a consultant firm, and I would be pulling in you know uh, arbitrarily two hundred thousand, but the company is billing me at three hundred thousand. Um, it's the same system that you're talking about. Is one evil and the other not? No. Here's I'll answer that one. The problem, the way it's exploitive, is 
Google, let's say, for example, Google has a contract with Acme Tech Support to fill out their project development team or whatever. So Acme Tech Support agrees and, you know, gets with Google that, hey, you're going to pay us $150,000 a year and we're going to supply this level of talent. Well, for it to be an American, you know, they would demand, say, 90000 So Acme's profit margin is 60, but they bring in an H-1B visa and it's 60000 and Acme's profit is 90. So Acme has skimmed the profit by undercutting the labor market, quote unquote, legally bringing in offshore labor to displace the American tech. And, you know, and it could be in the contract, you know, this is going to be based in whatever. So it you know, so they have to get them to come in and that's how they make their extra profit. Now, to be honest, Trump's doing this is going to, it's going to look bad to the stock market. It's going to look bad to the investors because these companies are either going to pay more money or they're going to lose margin or they're going to cut executive salaries to make up the difference. We know that's not going to happen. So this is going to be quote unquote bad for America because the stock market prices will go down because all of a sudden expenses go up because there's not the cheap influx of foreign labor. So let me put my libertarian hat on now, Seth, you have just vilified, um, profit taking. You've just said that at a certain point of profit, it becomes evil, uh, at a, a below X level profit is okay. Above X level profit is evil. I don't know if that's what you meant to say, but that's what you said. No, no, no. The government is suppressing. You know, it, it's not. They wouldn't. If these people came in and they weren't bound under the H-1B visa, then they could say, well, hey, you would pay an American 90000 Okay, I'll do it for, let's say, eighty or something like that. But so it's the government enabling them to screw america that i don't like let them come up with their own ways to screw america they got lawyers they're smart people they'll do it themselves they don't need the government's help in order to bleep this country all right so i'm hearing two different themes from the two of you and let's see if i'm reading you right miles your uh you come at this from an american protectionism point of view you believe that this system is damaging to uh the american entity as a whole and that were it to continue in its current state for a generation, uh, the, the country would be irreparably harmed. Have, have I stated your position accurately? Uh, no. Uh, there are two levels to my position. The first is that if, if this is a negative effect on U.S. college graduates and U.S. resident or citizen workers, I'm against it. So that I guess that would be a yes to your point. But to the second I'm also looking at this from the point of view of fairness, where there are 200 plus countries in the United Nation. Why is one of them getting 70% of our work visas? Well, that part is easy because they're the ones who speak English. Right. They so. can supply skilled workers with uh, a facility with the language who uh, easily integrate into our country, uh, our uh, country's culture, uh, and are willing to work cheap. That's that's the recipe that makes India the golden boy. Yeah, and and that's where I have a problem because what about Ireland? What about Scotland? What about South Africa? What about Australia? What about New Zealand? What about Canada? What about the West Indies? What about I mean there are so many other countries out there that fit that mold who if they were being forced to pay a wage that would not displace a US worker, let's say a reasonable wage at 100 and something thousand 
all of those countries would be on board with sending their best and brightest over. And that would be fair. But this is just a manipulation in which one country is taking advantage of us. And I guess I just don't like being taken advantage of. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I'm certainly not a privy to any backdoor deals, but I don't think that, that India has been singled out. I just think they're the people that rose to the challenge. Well, they're singled out by statistical nature when 69% of all of these 85,000 visas went to Indian tech workers. You can't dispute that. Well, it's not it's, you anything can't, the, against But the India. reason seems to me pretty obvious. There's such abject poverty in that country that they're willing to work for less than these other people that you mentioned. And, and plus, they have the infrastructure to support it. And plus, they are probably something like 70% of the non-American English-speaking population or more. So if you looked at it, I mean, because India is point. seven, eight hundred million, something like that, whereas no, every, they actually billion. probably are getting a, a smaller percentage than their population. But no, Mark, I'm the one who thinks it's bad for America long term. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, well, you well, you seem to come at it from a it's unfair uh, uh, business practices more than American protectionism, just just based on what you said. Well, because I thought he was covering the American protectionism okay. good. I was just <laughs> flushing out the argument and you know giving it another um, leg to stand on. So my my just I, I don't really have uh, any great uh, uh, emotion about this either way i i'm fairly detached it's a business proposition i tend to believe that the market sorts these things out um and that this may be a generational problem um and that in the grand scheme of things if the american entity this country uh chooses to run itself into the ground and lose its uh, dominant position so that india takes it well that's just history being history uh, as an American, of course, I wouldn't like that, but uh, I, taking the long view, the thousand-year view, this sort of stuff happens all the time. So I'm not really been out of shape about it. Um, but it seems to me that maybe we could mollify both of your objections if we just made these people Americans, um, you know, and, and made them have some skin in the game. At this point, that's why I preface it from the beginning. These are visitors. They're, these are miners. They're mining resources. They're mining American uh, dollars and sending it back to their country yes they're spending some of it while they're here they have to live somewhere they have to buy clothes they have to buy food they we're getting a percentage of it but a bunch of it is going back they're miners they're 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 digging uh american gold back and sending it uh uh back to india if the the visa program were not a visa program but a citizenship program uh miles how would you how would you react to that um you know when you come to a country to obtain new citizenship you come there agreeing with and embracing the laws and the culture of that country, and you do it willingly. You don't do it because you have no alternative choice. I mean, okay, yeah, people do, right? But when you're standing, and I've done this, when you're standing at the court and you put your hand up in front of the judge and you swear to hold up, you know, to the allegiance of the United States and you swear to the Constitution, that means something. You actually believe what you say. Well, you're I'm changing you know where you live I mean, i'm enough of a of a national chauvinist to believe that we could get that same 70 percent of of indian citizens who who feel strongly enough to become american citizens that they they wouldn't just want to be minors but would want to be citizens and that the only reason they're they're minors is that's the option available to them 
Yeah. Um, well, it's it, it, you may be right in if that was in play, but it's not right now. The way that the H-1B visa works is they're sponsored in by a corporation. And if that corporation decides one day they don't like that worker and they terminate employment, with that they terminate their residency. Right. And whereas you're right to say it's a, quote, temporary program, where, where it doesn't make sense is if you spend – three or six years of your life in a foreign country, that ain't temporary. When you uproot, you're not going to keep paying for your car back home. You're not going to keep paying your rent or your mortgage back home while you visit another country. You're going to sell all of that stuff. You're going to give your pets away. You're going to put stuff on a container ship. You're going to ship it over. That's not a temporary program. And what's happening is that the the companies that are um, – acting in this you know in this role of sponsor are effectively no better than a slave master their workers have indebted servitude they cannot leave the their employment if they if they do they have to go back home and at the end of the day their rights are limited there's nothing in the in the law from what i can tell that really gives them any form of right against their sponsor at all and here's the worst part at the end of that 6 year period if you fill out and do the whole 6 years in which, as I said, is not a temporary thing. That's a semi-permanent move. The right for you to transfer from your H-1B visa to a green card is held in the hands of the sponsor. The sponsor has to say, I will let you go to pursue permanent residency on a path to citizenship. And who would do that if that means that you would then have the right to go and work for somebody else freely and get US level wages, which you've not been getting for six years, um, they're not going to let you go. Well, see, I mean, that's, if- that's sort of my whole point. If we revamp the system so that it wasn't all of those things that you said, but that it was a sponsored, you know, where you got um, um, the company was compensated as in the way their consultant does, their recruiters. And the firms, the, the American firms have to pay the recruiters a p- portion of the salary for an X uh, period of time. And at the end of that period of time, you got a green card. And then during that six year term, you're vetted in the same way that any other uh, potential citizen of the country would. Um, And and, and to to your point about temporary versus semi-permanent growing up in Texas, I knew lots of Mexican nationals and Cuban nationals who were here 20 years and considered that permanent. Their home was still back across the the border. And and that's where 50% of their, their cash went. And that was home. And they were just uh, temporary duty yonder. Uh, so it, it's I, I think it depends on the mindset there. But I, I would like to see what would make me more comfortable with this situation is if we treated those companies in India like we treat um, uh, uh, consultant firms in America. They're hired guns. We're going to pay a percentage of the of their salary back to this recruiting firm that happens to be a foreign national recruiting firm. And at the end of this process, they come out as, uh, you know, resident aliens, if not citizens. Well, how about this idea? Let me throw this one out. For every one H-1B temporary work visa issued to that company, that company has to provide a full-paid four-year scholarship to a U.S. worker to get a college degree. So you've got 120 k for every one of those H-1B visas that goes back to pay for a U.S. worker to go out there and get a college degree. But is that within the, work- the, the, the mandate of, the, of any government entity to say that? That's a business decision. Can a government really, uh, within their power, do that? 
Well, in the past, the government paid for those college degrees. They, they paid outright for them. They put that onus back into the individual to pay. So I'm saying if this is a private sector benefiting from these resources, then the government could say to the, to the private company, you now have to take over the responsibility of paying for education for our nationals. You're displacing their work opportunities, so give them a break and let them have a, a free ride through college. I think if, if they did that, we would have a much more even playing field and they wouldn't be manipulating the system and the US workers would feel okay with this whole thing going on. I just, that has the smell of socialism. Well, um, it, it, it's redistribution of wealth. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. But it's also not fair the way things are right now. Uh, do you agree, both of you, that the American uh, system as it is could not continue if we just denied all h1b visas starting tomorrow i i do agree with that so I, um, yeah because unfortunately our education system has become so much about making sure people feel good about themselves and the horribly repressive lives that they have been forced to endure in this country that teaching actual marketable skills has fallen to the um, post-secondary type job markets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, okay, fine. If they if they come in, then they have to do grants to trade schools or something. But, yeah, I mean, it won't because, I mean, here's the reason it works is because we're fat, lazy Americans who don't want to do anything and get paid for it, whereas people from other countries are hungry enough to put the effort in and learn something, you know? And, hey, there's tons of ways that you can learn stuff in America. We've chronicled them on this show. You know, Khan Academy, um, MOOCs, edX, all those kind of things. You can get in and you can learn this stuff enough to get an entry-level job to get your experience and build your way up. But, I mean, that is hard and that requires work. I can just go get, you know, my unemployment by walking into a gas station and say, well, y'all hire me for 50 bucks an hour. And that's all it takes to qualify for unemployment in this country. And, you know, until the whole system changes, then the system is going to favor the people who work, I guess, long term. So, I don't know. What do you think about that, Mark? Well, I want to hear Miles' thoughts on my question first. Um. I, I, I'm of the opinion that a U.S. work – I have a lot of faith in the United States workforce and in the United States uh, culture in terms of its creativity, its inventiveness. Um, and I've seen that firsthand. Uh, when I first came to this country, it blew me away that how people could uh, – you know, what the inventiveness to get ourselves – to see an opportunity in a problem that somebody – when somebody sees a problem – Often, my American compatriots see an opportunity, and they benefit from that opportunity greatly. And that's something I don't think you can distill that. And it, it might be sometimes maybe it, it gets sort of slapped out. <laughs> People forget about it. But I think in a time when if we didn't have enough workers, we will find a way to build our own workforce. There's no doubt about that. I think that ingenuity is there. That determination is there. And I think that sometimes the short, sharp shock is required to wake people up and get it back again. And maybe this is an opportunity in the waiting for Americans to rise back up and fill those jobs and create the next generation of technology all over again. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. This uh, the um, drastic move of killing H-1B visas would be analogous to uh, setting a broken bone. Uh, when a bone is broken, if you just leave it alone, it feels pretty much okay. The initial pain of the break is over. You can go away with it. Setting the bone is a terribly painful and disruptive thing, but it will always be deformed if you don't set it. And what you, what you have outlaid here so eloquently, Miles, is a deformed appendage um, that cannot ever repair itself. Um, it's uh, it could it could be less painful, right? We can continue to live with the deformity. We can go on with our life, but it is deformed, and it will never be uh, uh, as fully functional as it could be. Now there, you know, hopefully, uh, maybe there's another solution that isn't as painful as uh, bite down on this bullet while I uh, reset your shoulder. But maybe there isn't. Um, the from the point of view of fairness, uh, I I tend to just throw that word away. Life isn't fair. If there's anything that any person needs to learn from the moment they're born, life isn't fair. And if you expect fair, uh, you're a you're an idiot. Um, so I just throw that argument completely out the window. Yes, it's not fair. So what? Life isn't fair. Um, from if we wanted to be uh, American protectionist, if we wanted to be national chauvinist and say for the good of our country. We're going to do this thing. We better be willing to sell people on the fact that this is for the good of our country. Um, and the, the the bleeding hearts out there who are going to see nothing but boatloads of deported people um, who have suddenly lost their uh, resident uh, visitor status uh, are going to have you know a real hard time with that. And I think greater than 51% of the country uh, would would rise up against that. So I think you've got to do a whole lot of education and inoculation before you could even consider doing something like that so i think we're stuck with this system for a generation because we don't have the american uh the the political will and the social will to do what it takes to break it well here's something interesting you know history can repeat itself there's a lot of selective liberalism here it, it, you're right. People will see all these people on boats going back to their home countries and feel sad in their heart that, you know, what are we doing letting these people go, blah, blah, blah. We've also got hundreds of thousands of returning servicemen that we put out in harm's way in Iraq and Afghanistan who came back to this country and are looking for work. And what a perfect opportunity to do what they did after World War II and create a, a educational program in engineering that will bring these people back into society and give them skills with uh, adding to it their obvious existing discipline of military training, bring them back into society, give them engineering skills, and there's your workforce replacement right there. That's how we went to the moon. But we to used quote, those engineers. To quote the liberals who don't listen to this show, I don't want a baby killer working next to me. So, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, and unfortunately, that's what a lot of people who would be opposed to that. That's what they would say, because they say stuff like that today anyway. So but I'm I'm with you. The opportunity is there, but it's one of those to fix it is going to take work. And who has time for that? Yeah. Well, there's a follow on from this as well, which I read uh, today, actually. Uh, apparently. Uh, of these big corporations uh, in India, the Cognizance and Infosys and Tata and all these guys have been seeing this coming for a while. I mean, they've been seeing a constant increase of scrutiny over these visas and they were expecting this day to come. Um, in, as a kind of a, a, a strange twist of fate, 
um, many of them have moved uh, operations into Mexico and are setting up software development centers in Mexico to sell services back to the US clients because they can reside in the same time zone and be, shall we say, nearby enough to be able to be an outsourced vendor where the work can be just literally sent over the border and done in Mexico. Apparently, the Mexican government's willing to provide them the the ability to relocate the workers into that region, and then they don't cross the border into the U.S., but they still do U.S. work. And, of course, Mexico is in favor of that because that's a huge boon to their economy. All of those people there, as I mentioned earlier, they're spending a portion of their wages, and that $60,000 wage is massive in most of the country of Mexico. So this is a huge boon to them. Uh while it fixes uh, some of the problems, it still doesn't fix the the American protectionism uh, problem. Right. I don't know. There's sometimes you just have to sort of think that protectionism is kind of like, you know, what you hear on the airplane when they say, you know, in the case of an accident, we're going to drop a mask from the roof and you put yours on first before you try and put your child's one on. And that's kind of what this is to me. This is like, at some point, you've got to look, over, look after your own backyard before you can be worrying about your neighbors. And how's the mess? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're training the rest of the world to come take our jobs, dadgummit. <laughs> and and well, what's interesting is, is this, this is the, uh, clearly the, the mindset and the thought process of three uh, American citizens, two, two natural and one naturalized. So we are, we're inherently biased in that. And, and I accept that. Um, I'm trying to put my, my head into the, the skull of somebody else, uh, who, who isn't an American and they might, uh, point out, you know, that, uh, this is, uh, centrally, cent- uh, simply retribution for America's empirical uh, nature over the years, trying to to build an empire and trying to expand its reach beyond. And the, and those those military people that you talk about, uh, you know, wouldn't don't even need to be where they are. That's just a case of America trying to protect their foreign uh, interests. Um, and so I, it, when I try to look at this from a uh, from a a non-American point of view, uh, I, I come up with a lot of reasons. Uh, that this is America getting what they had coming to them. You know, it, I mean, well, here's the thing. Neither Miles or I are saying that there's that there shouldn't be an H-1B or H-1B program. We're saying it shouldn't be abused. And I don't have a problem with the program. I have a problem with the uh, gross abuse of the program that runs rampant. Yeah, I mean, this is a country of immigrants. This is how the United States is. It's proud of that. So I understand it. And we all have to go through the process of doing it right. Um, you know, obviously, there's so much abuse of people who don't do it right and don't, um, don't enter the country or stay in the country legally. Um, this is a legal right, way of coming in, and it's got, it's got flaws. So it's being shut down or it's being modified greatly. And I, for one, look at this and go, it's about time. And so it's not because you don't want people to come in. It's just that you want them to come in not under false pretense and you don't want them to come in as indebted slaves to a corporate master, but you want want them to come in and have some level of freedom and some level of reasonableness in how they do it. But at the same time, they cannot affect everyone around them in a negative way to accommodate them. They have to come in complimentary, not not, uh, as a... uh, 
a negative influence on, on a US worker who can't get a job because they're saddled with debt. It's, it's so interesting to me, Miles, because you've blended so smoothly um, uh, social consciousness and um, uh, p- business uh, capitalism uh, that, frankly, I can't make those two meet, but you've blended them into a soup within your mind that you're perfectly comfortable with. But I hear you literally speaking out of both sides of your mouth there. And, and in one way, capitalism is good, and in another way, socialism is good. And I'm having a hard time understanding how both those thoughts can exist in your mind at the same time. Ah, it's the libertarian in me. <laughs> I'm the I'm the fiscal conservative and the social liberal. No, no, it's you know what it it's it, it can work together. And the problem is that the, the that we put singular words over these uh, these efforts that that end up putting them into a box ideolo- ideolo- ideologically. And if you don't agree with that, with the box or the color of the box, you naturally don't agree with the policy. I'm not, I'm not a Trump supporter, but on this particular case, I'll support this initiative. And that you, um, you actually led me into a, a point I was going to make is this is politicized. This is ideologue, uh, ideologized. I, I don't even know the right word. <laughs> um, regardless of whether this is the best thing in the world for America as a whole or the worst thing for America as a whole. It doesn't matter which way it is. The next president uh, is going to reverse it. And I think we that's just a given, right? Or the next Democrat president. Uh, it's, it's just a given. He's going to, uh, because Trump did it, that automatically makes it bad for people who don't agree with Trump. Yeah, unless there's a lot of people who got jobs as a result of it and they're going to rebel against losing that and going back to the way it was that they don't like that kind of thing takes a decade or two to see you know reaganomics was so vilified until it started working um you know and i i kind of think that would be the same thing here seth you had a thought on your lips i could tell um yeah i've i've had several come across here (laughs) i don't know but you know it's like we agree we hated barack obama until you know we realized some of the stuff he did for um you know ISPs and um, internet protection and stuff like that, we kind of agreed with. But our first thought was, he did this, it must be wrong. So, you know, that's how people are going to think of Trump. You know, I hate Trump, therefore he can do no right. And then maybe people will look past that and see that, wait a minute, maybe, you know, and it's one of those things. Okay, if it's broken, let's stop it and then let's figure out how to make it work. And yeah, so. Yeah, they, they have been they have been trying to fix this since 2006 or 2007 I believe there's been bills uh, in Congress to attempt to fix this problem that probably have been shut down by lobbyists um, but the, this is not something that is uh, purely Trump this is this right. comes in the in the Obama uh, generation and it obviously didn't get a great deal of footing I mean look Facebook and Google and Apple have a lot of lobbying power. And they just want warm bodies to fit in the seats to build their stuff. That's what they're looking for. And they'll go to government and go, you know, boo-hoo, we don't have enough workers. Increase the H-1B visa number, please. And what I'm thinking they should be doing is going, what can we do to help U.S. citizens get better educated so they can become more productive workers that we can create better quality products? But they're not willing to ask that question. It's a common uh, complaint of of all businesses. We can't find workers, um, and they put a period there. 
but the real sentence is we can't find workers comma who are willing to pay what we uh, take what we're willing to pay uh, well, and so that's that's why the whole immigration thing. I mean, you, uh, farmers will tell you the same thing. If you if you uh, build a wall, uh, you good luck getting strawberries because Americans won't do it. Uh, Americans won't do it, comma for ten dollars a day. Uh, and but, so that's the real uh, issue of the is the thing is that uh, the American demand for wage and the American corporation uh, willingness to pay a wage don't match up, and it's been a bigger it's been a disparity that's growing more and more each year. Yeah, it, you're right, but American American invented robots will pick the strawberries and yes. won't cost $10 a day, and we need American-trained engineers to build and design and invent those robots to do that, and that's the problem. It all comes down to education. Education is the great economic uh, multiplier. It it brings countries out of poverty. It creates a vibrant workforce, and it creates cre- uh, creativeness and invention in which we have so much still to offer and so many people to offer it. And I do believe that we need temporary workers in some capacity. When they bring additional skills we don't have, that makes a lot of sense. But when it's exploited the way it is right now, it dilutes its entire purpose and just makes it negative for everybody. Seth, your thoughts? Hurrah. I mean, I agree. So Miles is doing a great job. Yeah, I think that wrapped a nice bow around the conversation. (laughs) Um, I I would add a a wrinkle to that bow in that uh, the definition of the type of education that's necessary varies differently as you were talking about that that two hundred dollar education in india varies significantly from the hundred and twenty thousand dollar uh, education in america you equivalented them because the degree that they get have the same letters and the same names but in america um you will spend um half or more of your time and money on things not related to your course of study because we care about making you a well-rounded human being not uh, a good engineer and so you end up uh, that hundred and twenty thousand dollars is inflated because you had to take three humanities classes and four English classes uh, instead of taking engineering classes. Uh, so education may be the cure, but we've got to fix what we're calling education from the ground up. Yeah, I'll agree with that. And I am passionate. Yep. I am as passionate about education as you are about uh, uh, in you know invention. Uh, it's it's. It is the cure-all. It is the medicine for what ails you. Uh, but it has to be the appropriate education at the appropriate time. Uh, and we have lost sight in our country. We, we had this huge, massive move uh, a couple of generations ago to, to say we will have all humans, uh, in, in the, all, all American citizens will be educated. And that was, I, I'm not going to say unprecedented, but it was certainly rare in the course of history for a nation to declare that 100% of its citizens will be educated. Um, Whether they want it or not. Right. And that drove uh, a lot because, Seth, to your point, a lot of people didn't want to be educated. They just want to stay home and work on their farm. Uh, And it caused problems, but it also caused an explosion of new ideas and new technologies that we wouldn't have had had we not committed to the national um, uh, ideal of education. Uh, But then education became uh, politicized and now we can't even agree on the definition of education. 
And so that's a problem. That's another appendage that is broken and needs to be reset. And I don't think you can, uh, you know, remove the two. They they are they go hand in hand with one another. Until we can fill these jobs with talented engineers at a ready pace, we have to fill them some some from somewhere else. There is one adjunct to all of this. If you're uh, an employer and you have a temporary worker come into your establishment you assume they come in trained. You assume that somebody else did all the heavy lifting to train them and that they're coming in with skills that you can immediately put to work. If you bring an employee into your organization, you assume that they've been grounded in the knowledge that you need, but they show or demonstrate some ability or willingness to learn because you know you're going to invest in them education to turn them into a valuable, productive long-term employee and that's an important observation here Uh, a lot of these h1b visas are being brought into companies without a great deal of that experience and talent as if they were employees and treated in a way that gives them that education from the u.s company in which they then take that education and back home to where they came from and create a, a, a version of that company in their own local region that eventually can compete uh, with the company that brought them in the first place. I mean, I think that's something, but I think it's, I think it's something that people recognize and it's a risk, but it's not necessarily a risk that should deny them the right to work here, but we're making the assumption that they come in with skills and they right off the, off the bat, they're good to go. And I hate to tell you this, but that doesn't happen. But a lot of times with the, the way the H-1B system is being manipulated, they're all being funneled through that company, which is setting up next generation's market dominance by making sure they supply workers who are turnkey ready. And you know they're getting kickbacks from the companies that are bringing them over and in order to make sure that the people who come in don't have to be trained. So unfortunately, in the cases where H-1B has become a business model, you can bet if they're not delivering turnkey ready employees, the next company up will be. That's a good point. All right. I think at this point, the horse is well and truly dead and beating it will bring it no, not one inch farther. We want Uh, more glue. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the point at which I will uh, uh, extend an invitation to you, the audience, to weigh in on this. What do you think? Um, I'm particularly interested in hearing from our Indian audience out there i know you're out there um what do you think about this this is directly affecting your country uh in a way that you may consider to be 100 percent positive or or 100 negative or somewhere in between uh so i'm interested to hear what you have to say on this uh this is one of those you know sort of third rail topics we tried to treat it with with dignity and respect let us know if we didn't uh go to elementop.com click the contact us button at the top of the page uh fill out the world's uh, uh, hardest captcha and then fill out the form there uh, or you can uh, send an email if you hate captchas to geekrant at elementop.com that'll go to all of us or you can sound off literally um, at 559-IAM-OP leave us a voicemail there on our Google voice box and we'll play it on the air um, I, I like these kind of discussions and it's one of the reasons that we diverge from uh, Element Op- uh, from Everyday Linux we couldn't really have this discussion on a show called Everyday Linux and we turned down a lot of these types of discussions even though you might think we were way off topic uh, we avoided this sort of stuff. So I'm excited to, to hear about this. And, and I think it, the, the, the most poignant part of this was that 
it was the immigrant who brought it up. Uh, the person who really has the most skin in the game of making the, the, his uh, a voluntary home as strong as it can be. Um, and so I appreciate you, Miles, for, for having the, uh, the passion to, uh, to put forth that. And I, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. But for now, Seth, tell us what happened this week in history. Okay, April the 20th, 1951, the MIT Whirlwind Computer is seen on television. MIT demonstrates its Whirlwind machine on Edward R. Murrow's See It Now television series. Project director Dre Forrester describes the computer as a, quote, reliable operating system, end quote, running 35 hours a week at 90% utility using an electrostatic tube memory that stores up to 2,048 16-digit words. The machine used 4,500 vacuum tubes and 4,800 or 14,800 diodes taking up a total of 3,100 square feet. And that happened this week in history. Back to you, Mark. So 3,100 square feet, that is a room uh, 30 feet long and 10 feet wide. That's a big room. No, no, that would be 300. 30 feet wrong by 100 feet wide. I'm sorry, I, I meant to say, didn't I? I thought I meant to Wait, I no. said 300. Did I say 10 and, and 300? That's what I thought I said. Anyway, so you're talking a football field length and um and two yards wide or you know uh to 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 it's roughly a quarter of a football field is how much space it would take right to to take up uh, to hold this computer in 1951 and it could do um no it doesn't say how many calculations per second but probably uh, your fitness tracker that you paid 80 bucks for can smoke it yep and you know and the thing is you think about all of the science fiction that came out in the late 50s early 60s you know when they had computers they were the size of you know rooms or underground complexes that was one of the things that made robbie the robot so awesome was he was the size of a living human and to be an advanced robot but anyway so it really <laughs> kind of helps understand like the forbidden planet you know the whole underground complex that housed the computer and that's where they got the te- this the you know their idea of a computer was off of this show because back then you had like three or four tv stations and not bajillions of you know places to consume crap from so something like this was seen by a lot of people so that happened this week in history the 1951 they had television i thought that came well i guess maybe it was i got it wrong i thought it was later but that's that's crazy that's only six years after the end of world war ii and they're producing television programs and they had, it wasn't a television in every house in 51 but it was getting to that point yeah wow. but they had tv before um in the th- 1936 yeah was the the first oh. uh, uh intergalactic uh strength television broadcast yeah the um the german olympics was the first you know television program of strength that was beamed to space one of the major plot devices from the movie contact yes. um, if you will recall yeah. and Allah in the chat room is making fun of the fact that i can either do math or talk but i can't do math while i talk yes it's a known deficiency of mine i i admit it i i, I throw myself on the mercy of the court <laughs> uh and now seth what do you have to lower my productivity this week, thus making your, you look like a better hiring option? Okay, this one is, I think it's pretty funny. Um, shady URL 
S-H-A-D-Y-U-R-L.com. So you go there and you type in whatever URL you want to. Um, and then you paste it in there. And of course it has the double worded captcha and you click submit and then it create, it's a basically a URL shortening service, but then they put this long thing to make it seem, um, to make it seem dirty. So V E N E. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so elementop.com is now www.5z8.info slash how dash two dash build dash a dash bomb underscore random number underscore how to print money. So, yeah. so when I did the same thing, I got uh, www.5z8.info slash illegal guns for sale uh, G6 peep show. <laughs> Yeah, so you know you could add. Oh man, you could add this signature and like your email signature um, that you have to put your company info in and send it out, or you could do this to somebody you want gone. You could hack their email signature. Lots of ways you could use this to free up space for more H one B visa uh, applicants in your company. And the tagline is: Don't just shorten your URL; make it suspicious and frightening. <laughs> I, I actually, I've teased about it before. Uh, Chris, uh, uh, the former host of the podcast, will not click a link sent to him in email. So I intentionally expanded links that I was sending to him just to make him type out. You know, I would like run it through an MD5 hash just to make him <laughs> <laughs> type it out. He hated me for that, but, you know, uh, I am still a troll at heart. <laughs> But yeah, I think this one has legs to, uh, you could prank some people, you know, be funny in your company. I could see this going around the office has a joke and then somebody emailing it to an external, uh, customer or client and then somebody being escorted out with a cardboard box (laughs) later in the day. (laughs) <laughs> I've I've created a new uh, work schedule. It's on the SharePoint. Here's a link to it. Illegal guns for sale peep show. <laughs> yeah. Hot biker mamas XXX or something like that. So <laughs> I like oh. the hot older goats IP stealer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nobody brings useless stuff to the show like Seth does. Thank you, Seth. The show would not be the same without you. Man, you know, I try. <laughs> all right. And having said all that, the show is now officially over. Thank you guys for, for coming out and being the uh, intelligent, erudite gentleman that you are. Thank you to the, the people in the chat room who were interacting with us. It's always great when we hear people talking, uh, well, not here, when I read people talking back to us live. And you, the listener, you are the reason that we do this. And we appreciate it. And if you want to show us some love, uh, elementopi.com slash Patreon would be a great way to do that. Or use the elementopi.com slash Amazon link to make your purchases. Uh, I I know that uh, some cross-pollination has taken place between this show and the listeners of uh, the Android App Addicts podcast. Um, Through no fault of his own, uh, the Podnuts has lost their Amazon URL, so uh, referral link. So I would appreciate it if you'd turn that link to mine. You know, I'm going to be a capitalist here and say, uh, don't let that money go to waste. It's for the children. So uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week, because that's it for this episode of The Geek Rant. <laughs>